Hello, this is Kent Roundy, and I am trying my hardest to develop some content for medical students to help them prepare for shelf exams, have things to listen to while they're driving, and perhaps even learn things they wouldn't normally learn for their shelf exam. This podcast is a little bit of a departure from some of the things we've tried to do before. Uh, I've got a guest with me here today, and we want to talk about screening for suicide among adolescents. How about if you introduce yourself and tell us why you want to do this, Brady? Sure. So I'm Brady Hansen. I'm a fourth-year medical student. And um, suicide is a a national crisis. Um, We, you know, rates are continuing to increase every year. And in looking at a lot of the research, um, the screens that have been developed up to this point um, have, like anything else, a lot of strengths and a lot of weaknesses. And so I wanted to, to dive into this because I, I want to be able to have proper training um, when I'm practicing in a primary care setting to be able to identify risk factors um, and these patients who, you know, are maybe potentially having some suicidal thoughts or ideation and be able to get them the help that they need and prevent um, any uh, further future harm to them. And so that's why I was very interested in in understanding this a little more in depth. I like that a lot. You sent me five articles. We will paste the abstract, not the abstract, the uh, reference for those articles in the podcast. Um, But I I was fascinated by one of the articles that said, hey, if you're going to screen for something, you better screen well. You better be able to do something if you've screened. And what you do better be helpful. Yep. Does that sound about right? Yep. And it seems like that describes most of the problems with screening right there. Correct. All right, so let's talk about a couple of these. Tell me, tell me what struck you most of, uh, in your reading about suicide screening for adolescents. Uh, actually, the the one so one of the articles um, looked at screenings in schools versus a primary care setting versus an emergency department, and the school setting is actually what struck me the most because if you think about it, it seems like a great environment to to do this to accomplish um, a, a kind of a universal approach to screening, and um, this has been this has been tried, and what they found were a lot of problems that arose going yeah. off of, of what you had said. And one of those, um, I think the biggest problem is the lack of resources um, that goes along with a lot of the positive screens that they may not have uh, foreseen that they were going to get back. And so with all of those positive screens, they didn't have properly trained individuals. Um, those that were referred were consuming a lot of the resources that may not have even been uh, people who were really at risk. So they, they had a lot of false positives that came with these these universal screens. Um, and so they just, they were running into a lot of problems with burnout, with training, with keeping people in, um, enthusiastic about it, as well as the budget side of things. They were consuming a lot of the money um, that they had set aside by going into these universal screens. So I'm looking for my notes on this. I, I remember reading this article. Uh, this is the DISC-4, D-I-S-C-4, and I think uh, this article was led by Dr. Nemiroff. And they actually had very well-trained professionals that did this. So they had very high-quality screening of middle school students, high school students. And 72% of the, 
of the students were screened to be at risk for mental illness and 28% of those 72% had endorsed suicidal behavior. That's a huge number. Yeah. That, that's an in, incredible number. Now I think this was the most well-designed study that I saw, the, the best pep preparation, yeah. and still I think they had problems being able to address the positive screens, right? Correct. Yeah. It, it seemed like their conclusion was that this went better than some of the other screens because they actually just called the parents and said, hey, we're worried about your son or daughter. Yeah, yeah, that's what I got out of it. Okay. The, uh, there was another one that you mentioned. So one, one that I, I saw was the uh, Columbia Suicide Screen, which is part of a, a, a more broad questionnaire called the Teen Screen Program, which was implemented, uh, I believe... I think this one was in Tennessee, right? was in Tennessee, but it has expanded and was implemented in, in multiple schools. And I did read that it was stopped in 2011, um, that specific screen for unknown reasons. Um, but th that was one of the big things that they ran into. Um, this was an 11 item self-report that was embedded into this general screen and it looked at suicidal attempts, suicidal ideation, preparatory behaviors, negative mood symptoms, non-suicidal self-injury, and substance abuse. And um, it, it, you know, the actual report itself had a, a very high 99% negative predictive value, meaning that these, these kids that would screen negative um, had a high probability of truly being negative. Right. But the downside was a 16% positive predictive value, which means that there were a lot of people that may have uh, truly been positive, but also a lot of false positives. And um, it just, it, they, they wasted the, the limited resources that they had pretty quickly and consumed a lot of time with being able to get all these referrals and kids taken care of. My understanding is that there were a couple of other problems with this. Um, with the, with the, it was a self-screen, so I think they gave these tools out to people. And then what they said was, if you screen positively, go find some help for this. Does that sound about right? That is, yeah. Um, one positive with it is that they um, actually found that they had a higher sensitivity and a lower false positive rate when compared to the teacher referral for students who they believed were at risk. So that was one of the positive things that, that came out of this. Yeah, I like that a great deal as well. So when I was looking at um, when I was looking at this data and I was thinking about some of the things we talked about in the previous, podcast, right? We talked about the risk factors for kids attempting suicide. And I think, hold on, I got my phone ringing now and I don't know how to turn it off. Bottom right. There we go. We'll see who's calling in a moment and I'll call them back. Um, or I'll figure out how to splice my podcast, one of the two <laughs> things. Um, so uh, we talked about risk factors for suicide in the last podcast. And I'll just recap those. Mental health problems, peer difficulty, parental relationship difficulty, low self-esteem, exposure to suicidal behavior, academic difficulties. When you start thinking about those risk factors, it seems like in the schools we would have a great deal of ability for a modified referral for screening. So it's a two-step screening process. Do the kids have three or four of these behaviors? And if they do, then maybe you send them for a Columbia, because that would be very well a better way to screen out the negative 
um, and maybe increase your positive predictive value, which was very low with this. Yeah, um, and, and I think that's a great approach. There, there was another one called the suicide risk screen that was a 20 item screen and um, was again embedded into a, a self-reported questionnaire um, that was specifically for high school students who were at risk for dropping out of, out of school. And so that was one of those risk factors that they felt were um, likely in uh, suicidal behavior. And what they found was that 29% of those screened were deemed at risk and were to follow up within one week. But similar to these other studies, there was uh, very little follow-up, 31% um, did not receive any type of follow-up who screened positive. The staff was overwhelmed with the referrals, and um, I think that was the big driving force that led to the low numbers for referrals. I think there was something else in that article, and I, I don't know if this was accurate or not, but I started to wonder. They commented on the importance of having full staff buy-in for this, right, and having the resources to do it. And I, and I suspect that one of the problems was, well, if we can't do it, we can't buy into this. Mm -hmm. And I think um, one of the set of recommendations that you gave me was very fascinating. The, the uh, U.S. Preventative, the U.S. PFTF, the U.S. Preventative Force Services Task Force, um, has uh, made the recommendation that you screen only if you have services. Correct. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. So yeah, so their overall recommendation is that screening is not warranted due to insufficient data for the general population. Mm -hmm. But if there are a specific risk uh, population of individuals with appropriate uh, services in place for follow-up, then absolutely. Okay, yeah. Um, screening development. Where are we going with this? What's, what is the direction we're headed? So I, I think it's, it is a con, uh, just a work in progress. They've, they've been working over the last two decades to uh, come up with this perfect type of screening tool, again, to help uh, prevent future uh, suicides. And I think what they're starting to see, um, they're, you know, they're seeing some, some good results with some of these screens, but they've implemented other screens to identify some of the risk factors. So they're catching um, some of this suicidal behavior with other risk factor screens, for example, the depression screen, which is commonly used within the primary uh, care provider's office. Um, one of those being the PHQ-2, which is a two question that will, um, if positive, will go on to the PHQ-9, which part of that um, has a question about suicidal behavior. So uh, again, looking at some of these risk factors such as depression or substance abuse, looking at alcohol use or um, other behavioral illnesses are helping to identify these without having actually just a self-stand uh, suicide screen. Okay. Two other areas of interest that you identified. One, primary care physicians. In the articles I read, there's a mention that uh, it, it seems like the data is inconsistent. Correct. There's a mention that most uh, primary care physicians feel that it is their duty to screen for suicide, and another article said the majority don't feel that it's their duty to screen for suicide. Did I read that correctly? Yeah, it was actually, it was a study and it said a third of primary care providers do not feel it's their responsibility to screen for mental health other than ADHD, and I, I was a little disappointed by that. 
because as a, as a future primary care provider, I feel like that is huge. That, you know, that is going to be such a, a large part of my practice. And, and I want to be able to, to screen and have that option rather than feel that it's not part of my responsibility. I think it's interesting that screening, again, the, the problem is we have this highly morbid condition or a high mortality condition, right? Um, suicide. The probability of a suicide is very low, which makes our pro, uh, positive predictive value very low. Right? It does seem like, though, if we're screening for mental illness in general, mm-hmm. uh, that we can r- reduce the morbidity of the illness. Um, and, and probably we can screen effectively for depression and suicidality or even other mental illnesses and have that be part of a physician encounter. I agree. One, one of the other things, uh, just since we're on this topic of, of primary care providers was, and, and this I think was one of the things that stood out to me, is that a lot of primary care providers don't feel that they've had the adequate training uh, psych- psychiatric training to be able to address um, some of these issues as well as they get a lot of anxiety bringing up these questions. So one of the articles said that um, 11% of these primary care providers even bring up any topics of suicide or or ask these type of screening questions, which is alarming to me because I feel like that is a good setting to be able to uh, approach this topic in a safe environment. And a lot of these children and adolescents come to their primary care provider because they feel safe to share those emotional problems with them. Um, so I think future training in that is, is going to be very important so that you know we as primary care providers feel more comfortable. Along the lines of medical providers and being able to identify who's, who would have the um, most benefit from being screened. I was intrigued that emergency room physicians might be in a setting where screening for adolescent suicidal risk was actually meaningful. Emergency departments are very, very busy. And yet the article made a compelling case, one of the articles you gave me, made a compelling case that these were also risk factors for uh, suicide, having medical problems. Um, I'm In the back of my mind, I imagined children who are being injured by parents um, or are living in dangerous locations who are not having their medical needs met um, might be at higher risk for suicide. So they, they made the case that a screen in the emergency department was... Um, worth exploring further, I think. I agree. Yeah, and, and, and I think also on the other side of that, one of the problems they saw with the emergency department was similar to some of the problems they saw with a school or the primary care providers with lack of resources. So um, in one study, 24% of, of pediatric hospitals in the U.S. Um, have mental services available on site, which was emphasized as being very important. You know, if someone were to come in with suicidal ideation, um, it's, it is extremely important that they get some type of, of workup um, immediately. And um, another one was that 10% of the ED physicians screen patients for behavioral health issues. So you have you know, a small percent of, of the physicians actually screening and then another small per- percent for you know, lack of resources on that site. 
it's it's a daunting problem. I think what I learned from all of this was we don't have a great way to screen. We're working on getting a better way to screen. If you are going to ask the questions, you need to be able to know how you're going to address them. We talked about the immediate management of suicidal ideation in the last podcast. Uh If you have somebody that you're screening for depression or anxiety or even suicidal ideation, longer-term treatments or more more durable treatments, not just crisis management, which is more what we talked about before, but actual treatment. What, What kinds of treatments do you need to be able to access or refer to if you've identified uh, somebody that's at risk for suicide or has depression. So we, we talked a little bit about getting a safety plan in place for that uh, mm-hmm. short term, but for more long term, um, some types of therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy showed that it was, was beneficial as well as uh, DBT. Um, collaborative care is extremely important, making sure that the physicians, the behavioral therapists, the family members are all on the same pl- page and have kind of the same same plan, um, as well as of long-term, again, we talked about reducing the lethal means that could potentially lead to to harm um, with continual monitoring. Yeah, that's, those are challenges. And of course, um, one of the things that was most fascinating to me, actually, I'm going to wait and come back to the thing that was fascinating to me. I'll just add DBT, dialectic behavioral therapy. For some populations, I think the article said, and I suspect that that is largely for patients who have borderline personality diagnosis, uh, disorder diagnosis. And the CBT, I think, would probably be more broadly applied to uh, depression or anxiety leading to suicidal ideation, and potentially even um, simply suicidal ideation, but I would have to follow up on that. I don't know the answer to that for sure. The last thing you mentioned was collaborative care, and there have been a number of articles talking about having uh, these teams that are both medical and psychiatric teams and how they seem to affect the outcomes in uh, mental health care and general care. And perhaps I'll get a student to tackle that at a future um, topic and, and see great. if I can't increase my understanding of that and how that might change health care in the United States. Uh, one of the last things I noticed about this was that if we have legislative changes, that affects suicide. So I didn't know that placing catalytic converters into cars changed suicide rates. Did you know that? I learned that. I I didn't know that. (laughs) I didn't know it either. I was aware that barriers, right? So these buildings that are very tall, we've built Mm -hmm. barriers around it. It makes it it hard for people to jump off buildings. Bridges. Bridges. Um, Some legislative changes to access to firearms. Apparently, this article made the statement that those things seem to change suicide rates. Yeah, I think it's hard to prove that because I, I suspect that if we're not changing the problems that lead to suicide, there's another pathway found. But I think there's also some evidence that many suicides are impulsive and if you can slow down how quickly somebody can get to a suicide, that reduces the number of suicides. So things that are difficult to, to demonstrate with data but seem to be accurate from my viewpoint. And if somebody has data out there that, that uh, can shoot it to me, Send it to me. Love to hear about it. Yeah. We're trying to learn as much as we can here. All right. Concluding thoughts, unless you have something else that you want to add. 
Um, two thoughts of mine. So one, uh, you know, being in my position in finishing up medical school, I've been able to go around and, um, you know, be part of different programs, different residency programs, spend time in different clinics. And it's been really great to see. We talked about the collaborative um, care. Um, a lot of these clinics have behavioral therapists, behavioral um, professionals right there within the clinic. And so as a primary care provider, if, if I myself or another physician is in there and um, these thoughts of depression and suicide are brought up and time is somewhat of a constraint, there, a lot of these offices have the ability to have behavioral therapists come in, introduce them, get a warm handoff with the patient um, for you know introducing them, and then having them set up an appointment right there to come back and meet with the behavioral specialist, which I, th I think is just awesome. I think that's definitely gonna benefit uh, going forward is having more of these trained professionals within the clinics besides the um, physicians themselves. So that was my first thought. The other one, um, coming back to some of the treatments. So we talked about depression screening as being one of those things that might um, help lead to identifying suicidal uh, behavior. Um, but with, with depression, a lot of times um, adolescents can be prescribed SSRIs. And um, back in 2005, a study showed that there was a two times increase of suicide attempts than the placebo population for individuals on SSRIs. In 2012, the FDA um, came out and did a very large analysis that concluded that there wasn't any, any increased risk. But when they actually broke it down by age group, they saw that the, the um, younger the person, the more increased risk they were for, for suicidal uh, behavior, which led to them um, have, putting a black box warning on SSRIs about increased suicidal behavior. And so I just wanted to make sure um, and put that out there again for, for students listening to this and potentially running into that in their studies or board or shelf preparation. Take home on that then is this. Treatment of depression with an antidepressant, which is appears to be what is typically done by most physicians, right? We, mm -hmm. we don't do a great job of referring to outside providers to help us treat depression, right? Cognitive Correct. behavioral therapy. Um, just as we might, if we were treating diabetes, refer somebody to the dietitian for diabetes education, we need to get our patients to the depression education counselor, the, actually the cognitive behavioral therapist, yep. to be able to help them with their illness. Um, but if we do start an antidepressant, we need to, to have very close monitoring. Is there, are there recommendations for the frequency of monitoring in adolescents if you start an antidepressant? I did not run across that data in my studies. No. It seems like there's something out there about weekly visits and it's something mm -hmm. we'll follow up on maybe with okay. another podcast. Yeah, sounds great. On that note, how about if we stop here? Perfect. Brady, good luck to you. Thank you. Thanks uh, for having what's me. What's your next rotation? I will be at Utah Valley doing uh, medicine and clinic. Have fun there, okay? Thank you. Thanks, Brady.